Hello my friends, welcome back to Garda Goes Geek. On today's episode we are discussing The Eternals, from their comic book origins under Jack Kirby, all the way through to their inclusion in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and what their inclusion could mean both for the future and even the past of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Now, the origin of the Eternals begins with Jack Kirby. Now, Jack Kirby is a name quite well known in comic book circles, uh, maybe not so much among general audiences. Jack Kirby is an artist who used to work for Marvel Comics, and before that, uh, Timely and Atlas Comics, as the company used to be known. Um, during his time there, he worked on and created a lot of comics. And obviously as Marvel began publishing superheroes, first of all in the 40s during the Golden Age, and then later on in the 60s, he actually worked on quite a lot of them. As a result, he owns a creator credit for not just Captain America with Joe Simon, but also Iron Man, Thor, the X-Men, the Fantastic Four, and several others with Stan Lee. Now, Jack Kirby is an incredibly influential artist. There are so many people who cite him, who, who work in the industry nowadays, and who will cite Jack Kirby as one of their inspirations. If you haven't ever had the chance to look at some of Jack Kirby's original art, I highly recommend it. His work on Avengers, Fantastic Four, was, uh, and you know his later creations with things like the Silver Surfer, were some of the most dynamic um, artwork at the time. Um, you know, his panels, his, his composition was incredible. And he drew action like no one else. And he could come up with so many weird and crazy designs for anything that people could imagine, to be honest. Um, Stanley and Jack Kirby as well, between them, kind of developed the Marvel method of writing comics whereby Stan would give uh, Jack a, a rough outline of how the issue was going to go. Um, Jack would then go off and pencil the pages. He would then return those penciled and finished pages to Stan. Stan would then write the dialogue around the action beats that had already been drawn. Um, and so there wasn't... Jack Kirby wasn't working from a script necessarily, so he got to invent and create quite a lot of the story, which, you know, was pretty much unheard of in comics at the time and is still very, very rare to this day. Um, and, you know, several other artists would work, would do similar things. Um, but Jack Kirby just seemed to be able to draw some incredible things. And, you know, some of the characters he was working with, like Thing from the Fantastic Four, uh, who, you know, for people who don't know, is a giant orange rock monster. 
And yet, Jack Kirby would draw him in panels with such emotion um, that, you know, even before the words were added, you could you could tell that this was a, a tragic character. Um, during the 50s as well, he worked on a lot of the Marvel monsters, um, you know, due to McCarthyism, superheroes weren't in favour, but uh, horror movie monsters and, uh, you know, alien space creatures and all that sort of thing were all the rage. So there were a lot of Marvel monsters um, that were created by Jack Kirby, including the very first iteration of Groot, um, uh, he's also responsible for creating something called the Kirby Crackle which was uh, a way that Jack Kirby decided to draw energy fields by using um, negative space so he'd use black and sort of fill that in with white colour um, to create the, the crackle effect um, which is something that's still used to this day by a lot of artists to depict energy fields in comics. Um, and is even something that made the transition into animation with things like the, the X-Men and Fantastic Four animated series. So yeah, Jack Kirby is an incredibly influential um, comic book creator. Jack Kirby, however, did not always have the best relationship with Marvel. Um, Stanley, for those who aren't aware, is is kind of a problematic figure in comics. He's as as much as I respect the man for everything he was able to create and the the passion he clearly had for his creations and comic book media, like the the form of comic books as a media form as a whole, um, Stanley was problematic. He tried to court the limelight and tried to court um, fame, and sometimes to the detriment of a lot of the people that he worked with. Um, Steve Ditko, who worked with him on Spider-Man and Doctor Strange, spoke out about this, um, as did Jack Kirby. And what happened was that these artists were kind of being shunned for their contributions, while Stan Lee would tend to receive the key credit. He, he'd be the one that everyone knew created the heroes. Um, I mean, it wasn't unheard of. This, this was something that predated Stan Lee. Um, Bob Kane, um, the creator of the supposed creator of Batman. Um, was another figure who was well known for doing this. He claimed Batman as his entire original work, um, but most of the more recognisable elements of the Batman character were added by the artist Bill Finger. Um, and Bill Finger and his estate fought for years, decades even, to get the recognition that they created Batman just as much as Bob Kane did. Because, yeah, the original sketches that Bob Kane made of what his figure of the Batman was are very, very different um, from what the Batman actually became. So, as a result um, of Stanley's sort of media showboating, 
Jack Kirby eventually left um, Marvel Comics to go and work for the so-called Distinguished Competition uh, at DC Comics. Now, DC were obviously very, very happy to have Jack Kirby and, you know, were very eager to put him to work straight away. Jack Kirby, however, had a particular idea that he wanted to explore. Um, Jack Kirby was fascinated by what we would now nowadays sort of refer to as the ancient aliens hypothesis. At the time, I believe it was called the alien astronaut hypothesis, and it was popularized most famously by the novel Chariot of the Gods. Chariots of the Gods being a, a novel by Eric von Däniken. I hope I've said that right. There's a an accent there, and I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Daniken? Daniken? Uh, the novel Chariot of the Gods, uh, also subtitled Unsolved Mysteries of the Past, um, is a book that essentially involves the hypothesis that the technologies and religions of many ancient civilizations um, were given to them by ancient astronauts who would have been welcomed as gods. And, you know, that the novel was published in well the novel the book was published in 1968 and it was popular it, it held a lot of sway in certain circles um i'm not sh i don't think it has quite a, a popular represent reception um nowadays i think um you know we're more willing to understand that you know non-white cultures are able of to have accomplished incredible and amazing things. Um, but, I don't know, certainly there's there's some elements of it that still hold popular sway, like the idea of um, religious figures and um, certain creatures such as dragons um, existing in multiple cultures. Now, Jack Kirby was fascinated by the idea of Chariots of the Gods. To the point that he wanted to essentially create his own version. And he started this endeavour at DC. Um, at DC, Jack Kirby published... Well, he originally started working on the comic book uh, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen. Uh, he specifically requested that title because it didn't have a regular writing team at the time. Um, Jack Kirby said he didn't want to replace anyone. And he started introducing several characters um, that were essentially building up a brand new mythos. The mythos would eventually become to be known as the Fourth World Mythos. Um, several title, other titles spun off, um, all written and drawn by Jack Kirby including The Fourth World, um, The New Gods, and Mr. Miracle. Um, Mr. Miracle being a, a very, very great Jack Kirby creation. He wears a ridiculously brightly coloured costume of red, green, and yellow in ridiculous assorted stripes. And he's a escape artist by the name Scott Free, which I think is phenomenal. Um, now... What these books did was they told a brand new mythos of a combined um, new 
set of gods. Um, the new set of gods were the new gods, um, as they were called, um, led by Highfather, um, and featuring characters such as Orion, uh, Mr. Miracle, um, Big Barda, I believe is one of theirs as well. Um, although I think she might have defected from the, the villains and several others. Um, and their main villains are based on the planet of Apocalypse. Um, spelt A-P-O-K-A-L-I-P-S. So it's spelt very phonetically rather than the, the actual biblical Apocalypse. Um, but yes, um, the planet of Apocalypse, where their villains include Desaad, Granny Goodness, and the supervillain Darkseid. Now, Darkseid is probably the most famous creation from the New Gods. Um, he became a very, very powerful a very influential um, DC supervillain, um, a mainstay villain for not just uh, Superman and the New Gods, but also the Justice League as a whole. Um, you know, he's the he's the central villain figure through DC's Final Crisis. Um, he's reappeared in all sorts of titles all throughout the years. Um, He's been adapted into the um, the animated series um, for Superman, where he was voiced by Michael Ironside, who did a brilliant job. Michael Ironside being a, a character actor known for playing a lot of military roles. He appears in uh, Total Recall and Starship Troopers, among many, many others. Um <sighs> And Darkseid most famously appeared in the Zack Snyder Justice League cut, um, where he was the villain that Steppenwolf was reporting to. Um, well, technically, Steppenwolf was reporting to Desaad, and Desaad was reporting to Darkseid. Um, so if you've seen there's a Snyder cut of Justice League, Darkseid is the big creature um, with the upside-down Omega on his chest um so yeah the the idea of being that the the snyder cut and it, any potential sequels would have built to a final crisis type event featuring the the fourth world characters in fact anna duvernay who was hired by uh warner brothers to develop a potential new gods film um which was shelved shortly before the um snyder cut went into its uh final phase of production um specifically blamed the action to do the Snyder cut on why New Gods was cancelled because DC apparent uh, Warner Brothers apparently didn't want two um versions of the New Gods appearing at the same time which you know when Mar when DC is also trying to promote um a multiverse in their current films and have three different versions of Batman appearing on screen in the next couple of years, um, played by Robert Pattinson, Michael Keaton, and uh, Ben Affleck, <laughs> rings a little hollow to me. And, 
yeah, it makes me a bit angry, to be honest. Uh, especially with Anna DuVernay being a, a minority woman um, and her project being dropped in favour of a project by uh, Zack Snyder, a white man. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's another instance where diversity seems to elude DC and uh, Warner Brothers, unfortunately. But I'm getting slightly off topic. Um, so Jack Kirby basically created the... Um, the the fourth world as his idea of trying to explore some sort of ancient aliens um aspect you know the the these new gods were were aliens they had a planet of origin or two planets of origin um depending on which side they were on um they were they were very definitely a part of the dc universe um and i think it was implied that they had influenced it throughout history now, eventually, um, Jack Kirby was working not just on his Fourth World stuff, but on several other projects for DC, and eventually described feeling a bit overworked. He felt that um, DC were changing a lot of his projects at the last minute, um, saying that um, you know he was working in California. He'd send the page, completed pages to the New York office and then find that things had been changed by the time the issues hit print. Um, now obviously that irritated Jack Kirby and over the time in the intervening years he rebuilt his um, his bridges with Stan Lee and with Marvel Comics and so eventually returned to Marvel Comics in the early 70s um, the new gods carried on on DC as I said um, but Jack Kirby still had a lot of this ancient aliens stuff that he wanted to to work out and write about and that led to the creation of the eternals now i should point out that obviously um jack kirby's eternals wasn't the first attempt at the the sort of ancient aliens thing within marvel at the time um it was obviously clearly a very big part of thor's backstory um in thor the Asgardians um, exist in a, pl a different dimensional plane called Asgard. It's not a planet in the comics in the same way that it is in the MCU. Um, and, you know, they, they clearly interfered with uh, human history. Um, and Jack Kirby had helped write half of those stories. He also created the Inhumans um, with Stanley on the Fantastic Four. Um, the Inhumans was a secret society of um, super-powered beings that activated their superhuman abilities using something called Terrigen. Um, and it turned out that they had been given the ability to do this and given the Terrigen due to experiments on ancient humans um, by the aliens, the Kree. Now, the Kree, um, to anyone who isn't familiar with the comics, you probably most recognise them from um, the Captain Marvel and Guardians of the Galaxy films. Um, they are the, the blue aliens that um, Captain Marvel was working with. Uh, I say blue, they're not all blue. Um, some are blue, some are flesh-coloured. Um, and obviously Ronan the Accuser um, from Guardians of the Galaxy is a main villain um, for the Kree. Um, 
The Inhumans themselves have been adapted into a less than successful um, television series. Um, they, they were kind of rushed into production by Ike Perlmutter due to a whole load of behind-the-scenes shenanigans at Marvel. Basically, um, Ike Perlmutter, um, who's one of the, the Disney bigwigs um, not long after the Marvel buyout, became very, very angry that they were writing comics and making merchandise for characters that they that Marvel and Disney didn't technically own. Um, despite the fact they owned all the merchandising rights, I believe, for um, the X-Men and the Fantastic Four, who were owned by Fox. Um, although I might be wrong about that. I know they definitely keep the Spider-Man merchandising rights, because Spider-Man is like the third most merchandisable superhero behind Superman and Batman. In fact, I think he's actually ahead of Superman. Um, now, as a result, Ike Perlmutter didn't really want to create comics that were advertising heroes that Disney couldn't make money off of. Um, so he wanted to rush Inhumans into production as a film and put Inhumans out into the comics in a huge way. It gave them a huge publishing push. Um, and sort of scaled back the X-Men titles, and even cancelled Fantastic Four for a while. Um, this did not prove popular with fans. <laughs> the Inhumans themselves, they're not bad characters. They generally... Most of the Inhumans' narratives generally centre on the Inhuman royal family. Um, they're the ones that lead this Inhuman society, which is based in Atalan. Uh, the thing is, they don't often... They're not particularly great characters at holding their own title. Um, what they do very well is serve as supporting characters for other narratives. Um, so what Perlmutter suggested was, as well as producing the Inhumans movie, which he was originally announced as part of um, the Marvel Studios' Phase 3 announcements that they were going to be doing an Inhumans movie. But if you ever go back and watch that announcement, Kevin Feige does not look happy when he's announcing it, and it's because it was being forced upon him. Uh, Ike Perlmutter basically said, yeah, fine, you want to do Black Panther and Captain Marvel, because Ike Perlmutter himself was was very, very much against um, uh, minority and female leads, um, believing that they wouldn't sell tickets. Um, he said, fine, you want to do those? You do an Inhumans movie for me. Um... But then some other behind-the-scenes happens, uh, you know, behind-the-scenes, the fracas between Perlmutter and Kevin Feige sort of exploded to the point that uh, Bob Iger, the head of Disney, stepped in and separated Marvel Studios from the rest of Marvel so that it was completely under his purview and Kevin Feige's purview and away from Perlmutter's control. Um, as a result, Inhumans then got removed from the movie slate and turned into a television series. Um, the Inhumans, however, in the comics did get a, a sort of publishing boost by releasing Terrigen worldwide, which activated a whole load of hidden Inhumans around the globe. Um, that plot was also used um, in a more concentrated way for the um, Square Enix Avengers game, um, which released last year, I want to say, the year before. And... Um, although... That game is not very good. 
and served as the basis for the origin of the new Miss Marvel character, Kamala Khan, who is getting a, um, a Disney Plus series in the future. Um, so, yeah, the, the ancient astronauts had been explored within the uh, Marvel comics. However, what Jack Kirby wanted to do was a focused title, which uh, he originally wanted to call The Celestials, um marvel then suggested the return of the gods um before marvel licensing set uh Mar marvel's legal department stepped in and said that's a bit too close to chariots of the gods we might get sued and the title was then renamed the eternals what the eternals does is across 19 issues and one annual it was unfinished by jack kirby at the time um I believe Jack Kirby left Marvel again before he could finish it. Um, but what it does across those 19 issues and annual is tell a story, a very focused story, of the hidden group known as the Eternals, which are several thousands of years old. And they are placed on Earth by godlike beings called the Celestials, who experimented on early humans and separated humanity into three different races. There are the Eternals, which have a whole host of superpowers and are incredibly long-lived. They are regular baseline humans um, and the Deviants. Now, the Deviants are um, shapeshifters, monsters. They do not look... Um, they don't look human half the time. Um, and yes, the, the job of the Eternals is to uh, protect humanity from the Deviants, essentially. And sort of shepherd humanity. And then at some point the Celestials will return to judge us. So that's what the Eternals are waiting for. Now... It's an interesting story. It's an interesting plot. It covers a lot of the ancient astronaut tropes. Like, for example, um, the main characters of Eternals, a lot of them share names with uh, members of the Greek pantheon. Um, for example, there is a warrior known as Thena, or their leader, who is known as Zuras, and has uh, red hair and a big beard. Um, but the central... Eternals in the story, apart from Thena, are Icarus, who was posing as a character, a person known as Ike Harris, who was a um, an actual archaeologist who had stowed away on a, a mission which found the Eternals' god chamber, uh, which is what they used to contact the Celestials, and Makari. Uh, Makari is a speedster. Um, the Eternals all have the same powers, um, but they so they all have super speed, they all have flight, they all have energy projection, they all have telepathy, telekinesis, uh, I think they can transmute matter, all sorts of things like that. They're incredibly super powerful. Um, the idea is that the certain members, like Makari, are more focused in one specialization, so Makari is a speedster. Um you know, he doesn't tend to fly. He tends to run everywhere. 
but he also runs faster than any other Eternal. Um, and the Eternal series is generally quite separate from the main Marvel comic universe at the time. Uh, Marvel at the time was doing a lot of kind of like licensed comics, which are more self-contained stories. And Eternals does feel very, very similar to one of them. It's very, very weird. Um, there's a lot of quite high concept stuff in it. Um, they deal with the Deviants, the, the Celestials come back, and like I said, they are big, gigantic space gods. We see the origins of humanity. We see the history of the, um, the Eternals and the Deviants and early humanity. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of amazing ideas thrown in. For example, the Eternals are able to sort of combine themselves into something called a Unimind, which is basically they become one consciousness and are able to perform incredible feats with the power that that gives them. Um, there's also something called Mad Weary, which is a disease that affects Eternals who have lived too long. In the comic, this affects um, an Eternal known as Cersei, um, who is implied to be the the Cersei of myth. Uh, you know, she was the, um, the Cersei from, is it the Odyssey? Um, you know, the one who turns the sailors into pigs. Um, yeah. It's it's a bizarre story. There's a lot of amazing characters that get introduced. There's uh, um, Ajax, who is the not the leader of the Eternals necessarily, but he's the one who's able to communicate with the Celestials. He was the inspiration behind the Greek hero Ajax. Um, there's a, an Eternal known as Gilgamesh, who is also known as the Forgotten One. Although I do believe he was actually introduced later, thinking about it, rather than in Jack Kirby's run. Um, and he's obviously the basis behind the Epic of Gilgamesh. Um, there's a more villainous Eternal, known as Druig, um, who's kind of shady and, you know, sort of very duplicitous in a way. There's an engineer called Fastos, who is the sort of the origin of uh, the Greek god Hephaestus. Um, and yeah, I mean, the Greek gods exist in the Marvel Universe. So for the Eternals to exist in this comic, they were implied to be, this is where our Greek myths and legends have come from. Like the Eternals even lived in a place called Olympia. Um, and it's, it's great stuff. I mean, Jack Kirby... He's not necessarily the best writer, but he is an amazing artist. And the concepts that he was coming up with, the visuals, were incredibly impressive. Um, but he wasn't the only one doing the high-concept sci-fi at Marvel at the time. Um, there was also the work of Jim Starlin. Um, Jim Starlin is most famous to most people as being the creator of Thanos, um, he was working on the stories for Drax the Destroyer and created Thanos as one of his villains. Um, he was doing a lot of high concept space Marvel cosmic stuff. And 
yeah, a lot of it was was very, very incredible, very, very imaginative. And I think a lot of that just tended to hit with audiences a lot better than what Jack Kirby was doing. Um, so Jack Kirby left Marvel again. And despite this fantastic history that he'd created and this, this all this potential that it had, um, the story was actually left unresolved. But not forever. It was revived a few years later with the Thor comics. And between the issue 283 and... I want to say 305, but it might be... Uh, might be a bit later than that, actually. Um, but, you know, for 20-plus issues, um, Thor engaged in something called the Eternal Saga. Or Thor... I think it's also known as Thor and the Eternals, the Celestial Saga. And the idea of that story was that the Celestials had come back to judge Earth. And this was the story that folded the Eternals, the Celestials, the Deviants into the main Marvel continuity. Um, you know, it was explained at, either in, within this story or within Jack Kirby's original, I forget which, that um, the Deviants had conquered Atlantis at one point. And had struck out at one of the eternal, uh, one of the celestials, on one of their previous visits to Earth, and the celestials had responded by sinking Atlantis, which is why Atlantis was at the bottom of the ocean, uh, where the submariner was. Um, it was implied that, um, it, it was actually outright stated that the the gods of the Marvel Earth, so Odin, Zeus. Um, you know the Egyptian gods, the uh, the Celtic gods, because all the gods exist in the Marvel universe, um, had all formed something called the Council of Godheads to uh, oppose a previous celestial um, judgment of Earth, and that that had led to um, they themselves being fought by the Celestials. Um, an interaction between the Eternals and the Olympian gods, the Greek gods, had explained why sometimes um, humans thought they were dealing with the, the Greek gods and they were actually dealing with Eternals, and sometimes they were actually dealing with the actual Greek gods. It was kind of explained that, you know, they were both sort of in the same era at the same time, um and were aware of each other. Um but what what the Celestial Saga did um for the most part was brought these incredible concepts into the Marvel universe. And it was not long afterwards that things like the history of the Marvel Universe actually made that the you know the eternals the celestials the deviants those those experimentations on early humanity um you know part of the marvel history and as a result of that we then also got several retcons like it was explained that 
this is why there were so many superheroes and how things like mutants and the X-Men had been able to originate among humanity was because of the celestial interference. This is why it was explained that the, the Kree had um, created the Inhumans because they'd actually captured an Eternal and they were trying to turn normal humans into Eternals. Um it was explained that the the Celestials had done this to thousands of planets, and this, for example, was why the Scrolls are able to shapeshift, because the Scrolls are actually all the deviants of their particular planet. Um, you know, on their world, the deviants won. Um, but before the Celestials could judge them, Galactus ate their homeworld. So uh, Galactus, the planet-eating devourer from the Fantastic Four comics. Um the um you know two speedster heroes um hurricane and mercury from marvel's um 1940s publishing efforts under timely were retconned as being makari attempting to be a part of humanity as a super speedster um and there were even retcons tying in um, a group of Uranians and the Titanians, of which Thanos was a, a prominent member, as being Eternals themselves. So there was a retcon that essentially made Thanos an Eternal and his brother Star Fox an Eternal. Um, you know, it was explained that Thanos looked the way he did compared to most other Eternals was because he had what they called Deviant Syndrome. So he looked like a deviant, despite being an eternal. Uh, and that was their way of explaining where a lot of his powers came from, but why he didn't necessarily have the same powers as an eternal. Yeah, it was incredibly involved what they were able to accomplish with these characters. And yeah, the, the the characters were all folded into Marvel Universe canon. Um, you know, and they still are to this day. Um, you know, the Celestials' visitations of Earth as different hosts is established as Marvel canon. And they, they reappear every every few thousand years to sort of see how humanity is doing kind of thing. Uh, see how the grand experiment is playing out. Um, but even then, the Eternals, even after the conclusion of the Thor storyline, didn't necessarily stay in comics for long. There were a couple of attempts to revive them, but none were especially great sellers. So, um, you know, one of the series that came out, I think, in the, the early 80s, was um, it was actually billed as a 12-issue maxi-series. Because it was planned to tell its story and be done. Um, which it did very, very well. Um, but yeah, so... I mean, they're in, they're interesting characters. Some great ideas. Um, like I said, you have the main heroes of like Icarus, Athena, uh, Circe, Ajax. Um, you know, Circe went on to join the Avengers in the early 90s. Um, uh, during her time on the Avengers uh, Gilgamesh also became an Avenger for a while as well uh, under the Forgotten One 
uh, as did Star Fox, who was Thanos's, as I said, Thanos's brother from Titan. Um, Cersei, while on the Avengers, started suffering. Her her mad weary really started to affect her, and so in an attempt to cure it, um, she forced something called the Ganjosen, which is sort of a specific type of uni mind, uh, like a, of a more romantic nature with a human known as the Black Knight, a human hero. Um, the Black Knight is Dane Whitman. He is a human hero who has an ancient sword that's been passed down through his family lineage known as the Ebon Blade. Uh, the Ebony Blade, sorry. The Ebony Blade um, sort of absorbs dark energy every time it's wielded and will gradually corrupt its user. Um, so the Ganjosen between him and Cersei also helped him kind of be able to use the Ebony Blade without corrupting himself. Um, but as I said, it was later revealed, I don't think it was revealed at the time, but it was later revealed that it was, um, sort of done against Black Knight's will. Black Knight had been pursuing a relationship with the Inhuman Crystal at the time. Um, Crystal, um is also a character who's... I think she eventually married the ex... Well, the mutant Quicksilver. Um, and had a daughter. Um, so Cersei and Black Knight got spun off into a, a load of things throughout the, the early to mid-90s. Um, with varying success. Um, yeah. But their, their Ganjosen was eventually revealed to be sort of fake, which led to them breaking up in the pages of Heroes for Hire, um, which also saw um, the Deviants attempt to create their own Union Mind to fight the um, Eternals. Not the Eternals, the Celestials. Um, Athena is one of the characters who has had more interactions with humans and with um, the Deviants. Um she has a very complicated relationship with one of the deviant leaders known as Warlord Crow. Um, Crow has like a, a, a traditional devil face, like red with horns. Um, Thena also has um, children with a human in the modern day setting. The Celestials have some amazing names they're all given a title as well um the main two i remember are Eson the searcher who does actually appear in guardians of the galaxy the film he's the um the giant figure using the power stone in um the collector's videos um and arisham the judge um arisham being the the main celestial who sort of is judging humanity um but there's plenty of others who have been involved in multiple different storylines over the years. But for the most part, I mean, that was, you know, for once Heroes for Hire ended, that was the, the last real title that sort of dealt with the Eternals. Um, you know, Cersei had left the Avengers. Thena was part of the Heroes for Hire. She then left them. Uh, Cersei and the Black Knight had separated. So for the most part, the Eternals were kind of considered in Olympia in the same way that the Inhumans were in Atalan and it's like well they can be used or not 
and the Celestials had had been involved in the aftermath of the Heroes Return storyline in the the mid nineties, but apart from that, hadn't really been seen since. The big revival for the Eternals, however, came in a series that was released in two thousand and seven. I want to say, um. And it was one of only a few titles worked on by Neil Gaiman at Marvel Comics. Um, And I highly recommend it, as I do with um, his other main Marvel work, which was 1602. Um, 1602 was a a reinvention of a lot of the early Marvel heroes in um, Elizabethan England. Eternals is very different to that. Eternals sees the Eternals themselves waking up almost from a sort of waking dream where they have forgotten who they are in the timeline of the main Marvel series. Um, You know, it has some loose tie-ins to the comic book crossover Civil War, which was happening at the time. But for the most part, it tells a very self-contained story. And the first and final issues, I believe, are double-sized, but even then it overran from its original planned six issues um, to seven issues. Now, it doesn't feature all of the Eternals characters. Um, it mainly focuses on uh, Icarus, Makari, Thena, Cersei, Zuras, Druig, think Ajax in it if I remember correctly and uh, the character of Sprite now I haven't mentioned Sprite up until this point Sprite is a Eternal who is perpetually locked in the body of a nine-year-old boy now what uh, Sprite's main power is a sort of illusion casting. Now, in this series, it's revealed um, quite late on, so slight spoiler, uh, but it's revealed quite late on that Sprite is actually behind the Eternals forgetting who they are. This series retcons the Eternals not just as being several thousand years old but as being millions of years old um and after millions of years of being perpetually treated like a child sprite snaps you know sprite is as advanced as any of the other eternals mentally but is still treated like a child because of the body that he has. You know, he he wants to experience life in the same way as the rest of them. So what Sprite was able to do was to connect with a celestial buried underneath the earth known as Tiamat the Dreaming Celestial. Linking with the Dream Celestial and with the power of it, Sprite was able to force a Unimind with the other Eternals and wipe their memories, essentially, giving them human lives. Um, 
but at the same time, turning him mortal. It's a very, very good story. I highly recommend it. And when the Eternals film was announced, I, like many people, imagined that Neil Gaiman's Eternals run would be a big influence on it. Um, and it is, but not necessarily for adapting the plot directly. In fact, if you're, if you're not even a huge fan of comic books, I, this particular story was even adapted as a motion comic, um, which I'm sure is possible to find online somewhere. Um, and yeah, it's a very, very good story. I don't want to talk too much more about it. I don't want to spoil any of it. Um, but basically, it sees the Eternals returning. And Tiamat wakes up from the Earth and stands in San Francisco next to the Golden Gate Bridge and essentially watches humanity um, from then on. Now, that was, the, again, the, the major Eternal series for a while. There was a, a brief revival... Uh, a couple of years later, which tied them more into the, the Marvel comics. Again, it was a short-lived run, but it saw them interacting with um, the X-Men, who were based in San Francisco at the time, as well as several other heroes. Um, and again, gradually kind of developed them again. The Eternals, the Celestials and the Deviants, however, wouldn't see much more use after that. Until Jason Aaron's recent run on the Avengers. Now, this run started uh, a few years ago now. Um, but as one of its first storylines. As one of its first storylines. Um, Jason Aaron revealed that a... Celestial. I've forgotten his name, but I know his title became the Sorrower. Had been infected by something called the Horde, and he'd landed on prehistoric Earth. I think they actually titled it like one million years ago, and Odin, accompanied by, um. Agamotto, the first Sorcerer Supreme, the very first Phoenix, the very first Iron Fist, the very first um, Black Panther, the first Starbrand, who's a very complicated hero with a ridiculous backstory, and um, the first Ghost Rider, who was riding a woolly mammoth, uh, which, if you have any idea who the Ghost Rider character is, just tells you just conjures an awesome image in your mind. If you don't know what the Ghost Rider is, in modern comic books, Ghost Rider is a man who rides a motorcycle bonded with a demon, or a man who rides a car bonded with a demon. Uh, when he uses his powers, he gets a flame-wrapped skull for a head. So, yes, a caveman version of that riding atop a skeletal flaming mammoth. Um, gives you an idea of just how awesome that is. <laughs> Now, the 
Eternals weren't used in the flashbacks. Um, you know, these these early Avengers are what end the sorrower. Um, but it's explained that him sort of weeping eternal and well, weeping celestial guts and magic and all this juju that he he leaks out onto prehistoric Earth is another reason why Earth is so weird in the Marvel universe. Um, one reason among many. Um, but then the story flashes forward to the modern day from that 1 million BC um, origin and explains that in the modern day the Avengers realise that the a group of Celestials known as the Final Host are coming to Earth to eradicate it due to its taint from the Horde as a result of the Sorrower. And, you know, to attempt to stop this, these rogue Celestials, um, they go to try and contact the Eternals, only to find that the Eternals have all committed suicide. Um, Icarus, who's one of the last to die, explains to Tony that the Eternals purpose in the Marvel Universe wasn't just to shepherd humanity it was to guard them because the Celestials believed that the Eternals uh, so, sorry that humanity could act as a pathogen almost like a antibodies to defeat the Horde and with that Icarus dies and gives the Avengers the powers to form their own Unimind um, which they use to beat the host and the horde and or save the day, you know. Well done, brilliant. Um, but you know that story reads as like the end of the Eternals. Um, the thing is, it's not because uh, Chloe Zhao, who has recently won uh several Academy Awards, I believe, for Nomadland had got in touch with Marvel Studios and she had pitched them a movie based on the Eternals. And so even while keeping everything secret and everything under wraps because Endgame hadn't released yet, um, you know, Kevin Feige put it to work, gave her a script, gave her a team, uh, they started casting, they started filming, and they worked on Eternals. So when Marvel's Phase 4 was announced after Endgame's premiere in 2019, um, you know, and Eternals was announced as being one of the first Marvel films that was going to be coming out in the aftermath, I, like many, many others, was very surprised because... As I said, the Eternals are bizarre and weird, as you've probably guessed from everything I've I've covered. There's a lot of very high-concept science fiction in there, you know, that's not easily digestible into a, a two-hour, you know, two- to three-hour film. Um, you know, they've got a lot of history and a lot of um, connections to the origins of the universe. But at the same time, most comic book fans, again, like myself, were also excited for what this could mean. And then when it was revealed that 
Chloe Zhao had pitched this to Marvel Studios. And as I've said in a previous episode, Marvel Studios don't really take pitches. pitches. They have a very good idea, generally, of the films that they want to make. Um, before Chloe Zhao, the only... There were two other successful pitches, which were Edgar Wright's pitch for Ant-Man, although Edgar Wright had left due to creative differences and never actually ended up finishing Ant-Man, although... Um, Peyton Reed has confirmed a lot of that first film still uses elements of Edgar Wright's script. Um, and the only other successful pitch I can remember is Taika Waititi's pitch for Thor Ragnarok. Um, now, I think Marvel had been planning to write a third, to make a third Thor film, but after the, uh, you know after the very unpopular reception of um, Thor The Dark World, I don't think they were in any great rush to until they got Taika Waititi's pitch. So the fact that Chloe Zhao had pitched this and she clearly had a plan in mind for these characters made it very, very interesting. And the way the Eternals, the Celestials and the Deviants have all been used in Marvel Comics meant that potentially we could see some very, very, very cool stuff. So, what happened when the Eternals came to the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Now, obviously, this section will cover some spoilers for the Eternals movie. Um, I'll try to keep it relatively light for this first part and then give you a very clear spoiler warning um, for when I'm going to be talking about Actual spoilers. Now, the Eternals film um, benefited, I think, from being delayed by COVID. Um, apparently, the final print was done ages ago and was not really touched. Um, but I think it helps that it gave audiences a bit of time to adjust to the end of the the Infinity Saga, as the first part of the MCU has been named. With, I mean, obviously Black Widow released earlier this year, as did Shang-Chi, but I think Eternals is very clearly the start of something new. Um, in a similar sort of way to... Uh, WandaVision and Loki and, you know, What If and how they've definitely seemed to be the start of something new. And in in a similar way to Shang-Chi. Um, so I think that delay has benefited it. Eternals is a very, very different Marvel film than what we've seen before. It's one of the longest entries in the Marvel Universe. I think it's the... I think it's the third longest film. And that's behind Infinity War and Endgame. I think it might actually be slightly longer than Infinity War. Um, so besides the you know the three-hour epic of Endgame, I think it's one of the longest. Two hours, 37 minutes. Um... 
it's a very beautiful film to watch. There's a lot of very, very good visuals, a lot of location shots um, that I think really add to the quality of it. It's got a very, very good cast. It features um, Richard Madden, who played Rob Stark in Game of Thrones as Icarus, uh, Gemma Chan, who had previously appeared in the MCU as the character of Minerva in Captain Marvel. Um, I know her more from her work on British television um, in the show Humans, um, but I think she has done some some work in America as well. Um, she's playing Cersei. Uh, Angelina Jolie, obviously amazing film legend, is playing Athena. Um, Brian Tyree Henry is playing Fastos. Sam Hayek is playing Ajax, a gender swap version of the character. Um, there's also a gender swapped version of the character of Sprite, um, played by a young actress called Leah McHugh. Um, several racially swapped characters as well. For example, uh, Kamal Nanjani is playing a character called Kingo. In the comics, Kingo Sunan is a Eternal who acts as a samurai in Japanese um, historical cinema. Um, and obviously he's known for being a very, very good samurai actor. The reason being, obviously, he was a samurai in ancient Japan. Um, in the movie, he's a, a Bollywood star. And he's not just a Bollywood star, he's a a Bollywood dynasty. He's been he's been acting in Bollywood films for the past hundred years. Um which is a very interesting idea. Uh Barry Keoghan, I wanna say, or Kean, uh I imagine you say it because it's Irish, um, is playing Druig. Um Brian Tyree Henry is playing a gender swapped and gay version of Fastos. Um Deaf black actress uh, Lauren Ridloff is playing Makari. Um, again, another gender-swapped character and a race-swapped character as well. And I know I'm missing some. Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh is in it as well, played by um, an amazing Korean actor who I have forgotten the name of. Don Lee. Um, he's worked in, in several Korean films, including Train to Busan. Um, he's a, a, a very, a powerhouse of an actor. Um, and the film also includes, uh, Kit Harrington again from Game of Thrones, famous for playing the character of Jon Snow as Dane Whitman. Um, the character who became the Black Knight in the comics. So, yeah, it's a very... It's a very good, very big cast of characters. And, you know, that's 11 new characters to add to the MCU. Um, Crow also features in the film. He's played by Bill Skarsgård, whose um, probably most recent big success is playing Pennywise in the uh, two-part It adaptation. Now, the Eternals are coming together to 
because the the snaps on Earth have created a situation where they need to act and they need to fight the deviants again. Um, there's more involved than that, but I will get to that with spoilers. Um, they believe they exterminated the deviants um, several hundred years ago, and they've drifted apart uh, in the aftermath of that. Um, so this sees them coming together um, to deal with the deviants that have returned. The Eternals themselves came to uh, the planet Earth 7,000 years ago. They were sent here by the Celestial Arishem um, to guard humanity. Um, and it's just these ten that we meet in the film. Uh, they apparently come from the planet Olympia. And they came to Earth on a starship called the Domo. Uh, Domo being the name of another of the Eternals in the comics. As I said, it's very, very different to a standard Marvel movie. There's a lot of exposition. Um, but for the most part, I don't think it ever drags. Or at least I personally didn't find it dragging. Um, there's plenty of action sequences. And with a lot of the, the sort of Marvel CGI that you'd expect. Some very, very flashy um, action sequences. I know before release, a lot of the trailer material wasn't showing anything that was beyond sort of like the halfway point of the film. Um, most of the third act was being kept under wraps. Um, I, I say that having seen the film, there was there was very little from the third act in the trailers. And what was had been edited with CGI. Um, Marvel are no stranger to this. They... they they have created stuff purely for the trailers before, and they have created uh, use CGI to edit the trailers. Um, a good example being um, the trailers for Civil War and Thor Ragnarok, um, as well as the the fake scenes that they created for the Infinity War trailer. Where, for example, with Ragnarok, um, Thor is shown in the trailer without his lightning powers that he's using during the fight against Hulk, or Spider-Man being emitted from the um, Civil War trailers. So that sort of thing. Um, I've not seen Chloe Zhao's other work, but I do think this film does look and feel quite different to other Marvel films, I think. For the most part, there is some similarities and, you know, the a lot of the action sequences um, match what you come to expect from, you know, previous Marvel films. They're big CGI affairs. Um, but the CGI is of pretty good quality, as it is with most of the Marvel films. Um, there's... It's quite colourful. There's not as much of the traditional Marvel humour um, in this as there are in some things like, for example, um, you know, the Guardians films or Doctor Strange. There's less laugh-out-loud moments. There are still definitely a few. Um, 
but nowhere near as many. Um, I think one of the biggest laughs is actually in the trailers where um, Icarus smashes Fastos's table, um, believing that it's actually a an interesting weapon. Um, so yeah, critics have responded very, very. Not necessarily negatively. It's I think a lot of the negative press is kind of a bit blown out of proportion. Um, it mainly comes from Rotten Tomatoes. Um, this is the first Marvel Cinematic Universe film to not be rated fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, but Rotten Tomatoes, due to how it works, you kind of give a review, a short review... And then a you know a good or bad rating, and all that means is more critics have given it a bad rating overall, despite having mixed views on it. Um, so its approval rating is sixty six percent, which is you know pretty fair for most films. That means most most critics who have seen it generally liked it or found things to like in it. Um, so it's not not been negatively received by any means but of course the media will immediately lash onto that and be like oh it's the first marvel failure um because everyone's determined for marvel to fail i think part of the reason and the hollywood reporter um suggested something similar it was uh, richard newby who works there he said that Part of the reason why audiences might have responded negatively is that it's a very different film to what people might expect based on the the MCU. Um, you know, it has some of those criticisms that were there in the original work by Kirby. Um but also it's a kind of it's a deconstruction of uh superheroes in a way um in a similar way to some of the early DCEU films now i didn't necessarily like those early DCEU films man of steel and batman v superman um but i can see the comparisons that the the reporter was drawing um where it's like these superheroes are questioning their their place in their world, and you end up with a lot of quite meditative and melancholy narrative beats as a result of that, and an ending that you know <laughs> while definitely positive does have more bittersweet overtones as well. Um, but I think to really get into what I want to discuss, I think I'm going to have to talk about spoilers. Um, because, yeah, there's a lot to unpack with this film, with what it does in terms of adapting the Eternals comics, um, but also what that could possibly mean for the future of the MCU. So we'll do the quickfire geek talking points for the week first, and then we'll go into the spoilers. 
So, quick fire geek talking points uh, for this this past fortnight. Um, all the things that I want to comment on, but are not necessarily enough to make a full episode on. The biggest thing this past week was Disney Plus Day, um, which featured several announcements for upcoming projects um, for Disney, Marvel, and Star Wars. Now, some announcements made on the day. Some trailers came out on the day. Some of the things were some of the things that we knew were coming anyway. Um, some announcements came out in the aftermath, and um, some things we got our first new footage at, uh, looking at them or concept art or other things like that. Generally, there's quite a lot I'm excited for. Obviously, I'm excited for most of the MCU announcements. Um, the first new footage for Moon Knight looked very, very good, as did the footage for She-Hulk. I really like the what we've seen so far of the designs for both of those characters and the the sort of the tones of both of their shows, um, where She-Hulk seems more comedic and Moon Knight seems more more dark and brooding. I'm not quite sure about Oscar Isaac's accent as Moon Knight. I think I might have to uh, to get used to that. Um, the new footage from Miss Marvel and Hawkeye looked very, very good. Um, the Hawkeye footage especially had a very long extended camera take. It reminded me of Children of Men, um, which I thought was a very, very interesting choice. I kind of hope that we get some some longer moments like that um i mean i'm fine with a lot of takes for action cuts but sometimes it is more of an achievement to do a longer take like that um there was also the announcement of several new shows um some of which had been previously reported or rumored um such as echo or the agatha house of harkness spin-off um, and some that were much more surprising, like the Marvel Zombies animated series, um, or the Spider-Man Freshman Year animated series, um, which both look good. Um, in a, a non-MCU but still Marvel note, um, we're also, well, Marvel adjacent, I should say, we're getting a sequel series to Big Hero 6 um, I mean we've already had a cartoon series for Big Hero 6 but this one's specifically focusing on the character of Baymax um, who you know I love the interpretation of the character from that film so I'm really looking forward to that um, but the the biggest Marvel announcement that which I have been excited about since hearing um, is the return of the X-Men animated series as X-Men 97. I am very, very much looking forward to that. I was a huge fan of the X-Men animated series back in the day. I think it was fantastic at adapting some of the comic book storylines. For example, its, its version of the Phoenix Saga is as good easily as the comic book version. Um, and is a great alternative to to some to show to someone rather than say read the comic. Uh, you know, just watch those four episodes. <laughs> um, yeah, what about an hour and hour and a half of uh, you know good cartoon action? Um, 
yeah, whether it will tie into the MCU or not down the line, I'm not sure. There was a a, a leak from Doctor Strange a while ago that suggested that might be a possibility, but I don't want to comment too much more on that because some people refuse leaks because they do see them as spoilers. Um, but yeah, so it looks interesting. Um, I'm very, very excited for that. I'm glad most of the voice cast is returning, uh, barring obviously the actors who have unfortunately passed away. Um, and I was very, very excited when I saw the returning cast list because they're also adding Adrian, Adrian Hoff is returning and he voiced Nightcrawler in the original series in a couple of episodes. Nightcrawler is one of my favourite X-Men characters ever. Um, so if Nightcrawler gets added to the team, I'm very much up for that. I also have uh, quite a lot of respect for um, Alison Court um, returning to the show, but no longer voicing Jubilee um, and saying that Jubilee should be voiced by an Asian actress, um, which I agree with. I can't see any reason to disagree with that. Um, and I think that shows how much we've moved forward as a society towards diversity. Um, I do think Alison Court was a great voice for Jubilee back in the day. Um, but yeah, I, I do think that yeah, it'd be nice to see an Asian actress actually voice Jubilee. Um, you know, because she is meant to be a Chinese-American. There were also on Disney Plus Day, we got a look at Kenobi. Um, mainly concept art. Um, one of the concept art leaks... Not leaks. Concept arts, pictures that was revealed... Um, shows Obi-Wan and Vader fighting again, uh, having a lightsaber duel, which on one hand I'm excited about, but on the other I'm not sure about, because I'm pretty sure when they meet in A New Hope, it's implied through their dialogue that this is their first meeting since Mustafar um, in episode 3, so or at least their first meeting for a very, very long time. So, depending on when this Kenobi series is set, you know, I'm not sure I like that. Um, you know, it will kind of undercut Vader's line in Star Wars A New Hope, where he says, when we last met, I was the learner, but now I am the master. If, you know, we reveal that, no, they actually fought in the middle of that time period between those two films. But we'll see. I have faith that they could possibly do it justice. Um, we also had the Book of Boba Fett trailer, uh, which I think released just before my uh, last episode, but I didn't talk about it then. Um, it looks good. I'm, I'm finally starting to see why people like Boba Fett. I, I've never been a huge fan of the character. I don't think he ever really did anything in the original trilogy to warrant the huge outpouring of fan love that he has. Maybe because I wasn't really a Star Wars kid and I kind of came to them in my late teens. Um, but yeah, Boba Fett, I always found him really overrated. Um, but between his appearances in The Mandalorian and what we've seen from Book of Boba Fett... No, it actually looks 
quite interesting, so I'm excited to see it. Um, there was also the unfortunate announcement, Star Wars related, that um, Ryan Johnson's uh, film trilogy and Patty Jenkins' Rogue Squadron film have both been shelved uh, indefinitely due to creative differences with uh, Lucasfilm. I I kind of sense this was coming for a while. I am going to do an episode on how Disney has handled Star Wars in the future, I think. Um, but, you know, as divisive as Ryan Johnson's take in The Last Jedi was, I personally really liked his approach. Um, the whole idea of moving away from the past of Star Wars and trying to do something new was an idea that I really liked um, because even the old Star Wars EU a lot of the time just retreaded the same old ground so trying to do something new I think should be part of Star Wars <clears throat> and the fact that the film's course corrected after that with Rise of Skywalker to sort of, no actually let's bring it back full circle and bring back Palpatine and all that other nonsense um really undercut the message that he was trying to portray so I was excited to see what he could do with his own set of films um, and the idea of seeing more Rogue Squadron like I said when I was talking about Star Wars Visions a while ago um, and how it's all Jedi, seeing a Rogue Squadron film I was really excited for that and you know, Patty Jenkins, I mainly know her for her work on the Wonder Woman films um but I think she seems to have been tarnished slightly by the um, negative fan reception towards Wonder Woman 84. Um, I think I enjoyed Wonder Woman 84 a lot more than most other people. Um, it definitely had its flaws, don't get me wrong, but I, I don't see the, the sort of vitriolic hate that it seems to get um, from a lot of circles. I'd, I'm not quite sure where that's all coming from. <sighs> Never mind. Um, going back to sort of Marvel, or, or at least Marvel adjacent properties, there's been two other trailers, um, both of which have got people talking. First was the trailer for Morbius. Um, I think a lot of people had kind of forgotten Morbius existed. Um, I, I was I'm a bit dubious on how they're going to market the the super, you know, the vampire who gets his superpowers from bats in a, a post-COVID world. Um, but no, the new trailer looks good. It's got some very very interesting things in it. I'm not a huge fan of Jared Leto as a leading man, but he seems perfectly capable in this. Um, you know, the character seems interesting enough. They've done some interesting things with Morbius's powers um, visually in the trailer. Um, the question is, I think on most people's lips, is what universe is it supposed to be in? Because there are references to not just Venom, but also the MCU, the Amazing Spider-Man films, and the Raimi Spider-Man films. Uh, for example, we see Oscorp Tower from the Amazing Spider-Man films. We see the Sam Raimi Spider-Man suit 
um, spray painted on a wall with murderer written across it. The idea of Spider-Man being a murderer is something that came from the end of Far From Home. And we also see Michael Keaton's Vulture, and it's, he's been explicitly confirmed to be playing the Vulture now. Um, so he's explicitly playing the same character that he did in Spider-Man Homecoming. So is this set in the MCU? Is it not? We've also got the, the Daily Bugle newspaper um, with the same letterhead that it had in Venom and the Raimi films. But again, the Daily Bugle isn't a newspaper in the MCU. It's uh, kind of like a, a a talk show, a web show. So, yeah, I'm very confused and very intrigued um, as to what's going on there. And speaking, obviously, of multiple Spider-Man universes, we've had the new trailer for Spider-Man No Way Home. Um which features villains from previous films, um, not just Doc Ock and the Green Goblin, but also Sandman, Electro, and the Lizard going up against Tom Holland's Spider-Man. Um, no shots of the very, very rumoured um, Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield returning as Spider-Men. Yeah, Spider-Men, Spider-Mans in the film, um, in the trailer. There is, uh, however, some footage from an alternate cut of the trailer that released on Brazilian YouTube, I believe, which shows Lizard reacting as though he's being hit, but no one's actually hitting him. Um, which many people are taking as a sign that, again, as I said before, the trailers have been edited by Marvel or Sony to digitally remove a figure. Um, even if the two Spider-Men aren't in it, and these, you know, like I said, that Hollywood's worst kept secret actually turns out to be false, um, I'm fine with just the idea of the villains going up against Tom Holland, to be completely honest. I especially like the idea that in the newest trailer, it does seem that um, Doc Ock isn't quite a villain in the same way that he appeared in the first trailer. Um, like There's elements where he's actually talking to Peter in a, a more lucid form. Um, obviously, anyone who's seen the original Spider-Man 2 will remember that... Um, Doc Ock was like possessed by his tentacles um, and they made him a bit more they were able to influence his behaviour and make him more evil than he was um, and you know he actually helped Spider-Man save the day at the end of that film um, getting quite a sort of noble redemptive sacrifice Um and I like many other people would like that aspect of that portrayal of Dr. Octopus to remain um, and it looks in this trailer like that might be the case there's even one shot in the trailer where Doc Ock reacts as if he's just been attacked from Electro's lightning we see him falling off the building while Electro's blasting it suggesting that 
you know, Doc Ock is perhaps turning on the other members, the other villains. So, we'll see. Um, the last thing I want to talk about is a recent thing. Um, it's kind of a still developing story. Um, season 4 of Star Trek Discovery um, premiered on Thursday, the 18th of, Des- of uh, November in America. It was due to premiere on the 19th um, in international markets uh, via Netflix. Uh, and I think Netflix in most markets anyway and uh, a few other carriers in some other territories. But um, a couple of days ago, CBS and Paramount announced that despite actors being at conventions and stuff this past weekend saying and confirming that yes, international audiences would get um, Star Trek the day after the American premiere, as we had done for the previous three seasons, that instead Discovery Season 4 is being pulled from Netflix and other foreign distributors um, because Paramount Plus is going to be launching in international markets next year. Um, we'd already been told that Star Trek Prodigy um, was going to be held for Paramount Plus and presumably Star Trek Strange New Worlds but the fact that Star Trek Discovery was advertised for international markets on Netflix and then pulled at the last minute really irked not just me but a large portion of the Star Trek fan base especially the international Star Trek fan base um and yeah I'm pissed I'm really pissed and I think it's a terrible move by CBS it makes me not want to get Paramount Plus at all and it makes me want to pirate Discovery um I believe they'll probably pull this with um, Star Trek Picard Season 2, which I think is due to debut in January or February time as well, despite the fact that, again, it's been advertised as coming to Amazon Prime um, outside of America. I would not be surprised at all if it gets pulled at the last minute for Paramount+. Plus. Um... Yeah, I think they've made a horrible decision, and I really hope they change their mind on it. I haven't seen the episode yet, um, but yeah, if they don't change their mind as soon as that, as soon as the series is finished in America, I'm going to be pirating a lot of them um, because yeah, I think I, as much as I love Star Trek. Um, the fact I've done a whole episode on Star Trek shows you how much I love it as a franchise I am not paying for Paramount Plus for one franchise not least of which when the rest of the Star Trek shows are still on Netflix it would only be the new ones that I'd be trying to get and not even all of the new ones because the existing three series are still on Netflix (laughs) I don't believe they will stay on Netflix once 
um, Paramount Plus launches. I, I don't believe that for a second. You know, Lower Decks and Picard, etc., will all end up on Paramount Plus, no doubt. Um, you know, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, etc. But Star Trek DVDs are a dime a dozen secondhand nowadays. I can I can get all of the existing Star Trek that I love on DVD very affordably. Um, and I can pirate the current series for free. Um, you know, Star Trek, one of the races in Star Trek, the Ferengi, they live by the rules of acquisition. Rule of acquisition number three, never pay more for an acquisition than you need to. I don't need to pay to be able to watch these new series. And I don't think I should. <laughs> you know, I don't... You know, there's not often I will endorse piracy, but I think this decision is shows a complete lack of respect for the fans. And that's not something I can support. Not something I'm willing to support. But... Back to Eternals. Now, getting into spoilers. The Eternals film, in a very, very similar way to a lot of their comics work, tells a very non-linear narrative. Um, it does start 7,000 years ago, um, when they arrive on Earth. Um, they fight their first load of deviants uh, to save a human group and sort of start interacting with the humans. Then we get the titles. We fast forward to the modern day where Cersei is dating Dane Whitman, um, a historian who works at the Natural History Museum with her. Um, while walking home from a party with Sprite, um, who lives with Cersei, um, Dane does not live with her and desperately wants to. In fact, he asks her to move in with him, uh, during the party. Um, uh, but they are attacked by a deviant. Now, it turns out Sprite has told Dane their history. Dane didn't believe it until all of a sudden he's confronted with this deviant in front of him. Um, they battle the deviant um, on the streets of London. Uh, I believe it's near Camden Docks. Um, and Icarus flies in to save them um, using his powers to eventually kind of scare this deviant off. But during the battle, the deviant is seen to be healing itself. Now, in the film, the Eternals all have different powers. Cersei has the ability to transmute objects. Icarus is the only one able to fly and shoots beams from his eyes. Um, Sprite casts illusions. The power of healing belongs to Ajax in the film. And only to Ajax. So the fact the Deviant is able to heal using the same power that Ajax has unnerves Cersei and Icarus as well as Sprite. Um, the three of them leave Day behind to head to find Ajax. 
when they arrive at her farm, they find that she's been killed. And her body has been left drained. She's kind of grey and devoid of colour. Um, she looks very, very similar to Vision after he has the stone ripped out of his head by Thanos, to be honest. Um, a celestial sphere that Ajax uses to communicate with the Celestials goes into Cersei, um, revealing that she has picked Cersei as her successor. Um, with it, Cersei is able to communicate with Arishem. The Eternals continue to gather. I think they they then go and meet. Uh, they first go to find Kingo. Um, they find Kingo. Um, like I said, he's been living as a he's been posing as a Bollywood dynasty for the past hundred years. So he is. Uh, he has portrayed four different Kingos. <laughs> throughout Bollywood cinema, um, and we get a we get a very good Bollywood number. It's a lot of fun. Um, he then takes them to find Thena and Gilgamesh. Um, we reveal that Thena is suffering from Mad Weary, um, and she's sort of talking about events that never happened, as far as the rest of the Eternals are aware. Um, planets that fell. And Gilgamesh sort of took it on himself to support her and kind of guard her away from humanity and away from the other internals because he's one of the few people strong enough to subdue her um, because Thena conjures weapons. That's her ability. So she conjures weapons and, you know, during the scene where we see her with Mad Weary um, during the fall of uh, Tenochtitlan. Uh, in 1521, uh, she fights the other Eternals. She fights Icarus, she fights Kingo, she fights Druig, she fights several of the others. Um, before being subdued. Uh, we reveal that after the fall of Tenochtitlan, the Eternals believed all of the Deviants had been destroyed, but they divided over... Um, their views on humanity. We find out that, you know, while they were living in ancient Babylon, um, Fastos was trying to create technology that he could give to humans to make things better and easier for them. Like he wanted to give them, he wanted to give ancient humans the steam engine. Um, in around sort of 575 BC. <laughs> Which obviously Ajak told him not to. So instead he gave us the plough. Um, and we reveal that. The different in humans all have. Different levels of interaction with humanity. Um, Cersei for example is very fond of humans. Uh, interacts with them quite a lot. Um, Cersei and Icarus uh, eventually end up in a relationship, fall in love. Um, since the... When they believed the Eternal... When they believed the Deviants had been destroyed, however, um, Druig spoke out against the fact that the... that Tadokakan was falling, that the Spanish were invading and, um, you know, wiping out the native population. 
But Ajax reminded him that they are not to get involved in humanity's wars. Their goal is to, their job is to safeguard humanity. They are not to get involved unless the deviants are a threat. Unless the deviants are already involved. Which explains why they never got involved during the battle with Thanos or anything like that. Or world wars or anything else like that. Deviants didn't play a part of it. Druig um, opposes Ajax on this and uses his powers to take mental control of a load of Spanish and uh, Incan. Is it Incan or Mayan? I don't know remember. Um, but a load of the, the natives and the Spanish invaders and takes them away by force. Uh, and they disappear into... Uh, into the nearby jungles and are lost. Um, you know that's him walking away from the Eternals, and you know that's where they kind of fractured as a, a group, for the most part. Cersei is eventually able to communicate with Arishem, and she learns from him the true nature of their mission. The Celestials are born within planets. The energy of a planetary population is what nurtures them uh, while they're gestating and allows them to be born. Uh, when they are born, it invariably destroys the host planet. The Deviants were first created by the Celestials to eliminate the apex predators on a world so that the native population could flourish. However, the Deviants themselves then became the apex predators. Thus, the Eternals were created to eliminate the Deviants and to safeguard um, the native population of a planet. Once the population hit a certain number, the Celestial within the planet would emerge... And then once that Celestial was grown, it would be able to assist the others in creating galaxies and stars and solar systems. The Celestials are essentially cosmic gardeners. Um, and the Celestials are revealed to have been doing this for millions of years, if not far longer. And there is a celestial within the Earth. And the returning population in the aftermath of the, the blip has seen the numbers on Earth climb high enough that the emergence is days away. So the Eternals resolve to stop it. Um, they go to find Druig. They want Druig's help to kind of help them um, deal with uh, Tiamat, the Awakenings, the Celestial within the Earth. Um, they also find out from... Cersei also finds out from Arishem that the Eternals are all artificial constructs. They're essentially robots. They're all, they do not come from the planet Olympia. They are manufactured in the Star Forge by the Celestials themselves and sent out to different planets. Um, 
Fastos uses the celestial sphere, uh, celestial sphere, to craft bracelets with the idea of allowing the Eternals to form a unimind to put Tiamat back to sleep. Um, however, it is revealed that Icarus actually knows of their true purpose. And he was the one responsible for Ajax's death. Um, a melting glacier had revealed these final few deviants. He took Ajax and let her get killed by them, essentially. She has a, a non-offensive power. She was no match for the deviants without help. Um, and she was killed and absorbed by a deviant now known as Crow. Um... That's the deviant that attacked Cersei and Sprite in London um, using Ajax's powers. And he then leads an attack with the rest of the deviants on Druig's village in the Amazon um, while the other heroes are there. Um, and in so doing, kills Gilgamesh because Thena is unable to fight because she's consumed by her mad weary. Um... So yeah, Gilgamesh dies, and upon absorbing Gilgamesh's powers, that deviant turns into Crow, and is able to speak. Much to the shock of the Eternals. Um, however, I think all the other deviants are killed. I think Crow is the only one remaining. Um... The, the, the Eternals managed to find the Domo. This is where they, they reveal the plan with the Unimind. Icarus turns on them um, when it's revealed what what he's done. Um, he turns on them. Sprite, who is actually in love with Icarus, um, due to, as I said, being perpetually trapped in the body of a child, but a mind that is 7,000 years old, the same as the rest of them, um, you know, she's in love with Icarus. And she leaves to support him and to watch Tiamat awaken. Um, and Kingo retreats. He has too much respect for Icarus as their leader and is unable to fight him. Which I thought was a really interesting idea. The fact that he was able to sort of turn away from them in their hour of need. Um, but yes, I did like it as a an interesting idea, a, a character who's just like, no, this is a fight I cannot be part of, because I'm too conflicted. Um. So the remaining Eternals try to f not only fight Icarus and to subdue him, um, with their own skills and powers, uh, which. They do very, very well. Fastos is able to use a whole load of little devices to kind of subdue Icarus um, phenomenally well. Like, Fastos in the action scene was probably my favourite character because he was just constantly doing cool stuff. Um, the rest of the Eternals managed to subdue Sprite as well, and they attempt to form the Unimind. However, Druig is unable to focus the power on Tiamat. So this time, they try again. 
um, while Thena fights Crow um, and manages to overcome her mad weary to eliminate Crow. Um, as Tiamat is beginning to hatch, his, his head and his hand starting to poke through the Indian Ocean, uh, you know, through the planet crust, Cersei takes the, the centre of the Unimind, um, with Icarus unable to oppose her and joining the Unimind himself along with Sprite. And together they are able to subdue Tiamat. Um, they don't put him to sleep though, however, they kill him. They transform him into marble. Um... In the aftermath, Icarus is sort of unable to sort of reconcile what he's done and flies into the sun. And Sprite, with the last remaining power of the Unimind within Cersei, is turned human, turned mortal. Um, in the aftermath of the battle, Sprite is sort of going with heading off to school. Um, Cersei meets back up with Dane and tells him everything that's happened uh, Kingo's going back to his career Fastos is back with his family his husband and his children um, and Makari, Druig and Thena take the Domo into space not long after they leave however Arisham arrives on Earth takes Cersei, Kingo and uh, Fastos and says that he will judge humanity based on their memories. And he takes them and they disappear. Um, leaving Dane sort of what happens next. Um, the post credit scenes pick up with the three Eternals on the ship. Being visited by Pip the Troll. And the recently re revealed in a character poster, Harry Styles playing the eternal Star Fox, Thanos' brother. Um, and he is confirmed to be Thanos' brother in this. He's known as the eternal Eros. Um, Pip the Troll is his, like, lackey assistant, uh, who is being voiced by Patton Oswalt. And Eros reveals that he has his own celestial sphere, and he wants to help them find the rest of the Eternals, which is what they were going into space to do, to, to tell other Eternals on other planets what their mission actually is. Um, it was revealed that basically they're mind-wiped after different uh, emergencies, and the, the Mad Weary, as a result of that, Fina was essentially reliving past experiences. Um... The final post-credit sequence um, sees Dane Whitman um, with the Ebony Blade considering picking it up and using it. And just before he touches it, a voice from off-screen says, Are you sure you want to do that, Mr. Whitman? The voice off-screen is Mahersha Ali as Blade, who was announced... A while ago, as joining the MCU, um, as an upcoming character. So, 
as you can see, based on everything I've talked about before, it uses a lot of the Eternals lore um, in, and a lot of the previous stories in new and interesting ways. This is something I quite like about the MCU. It takes a lot of its comic book origins, but twists them in ways that, even as a comic book fan, I can still find things to be surprised by. Like, I wasn't expecting Icarus to be one of the main villains of the film. Um, You know, you might expect a heel turner from Sprite because of the Neil Gaiman series. Um, You know, that, that whole element of Sprite you know, the the adult trapped in the child's body forever being disregarded. Um, you know, there's a very nice scene at the party, at Dane's party, where she's projecting an illusion to look like an adult woman and trying to flirt with a young man at the bar, but then when he reaches his for her hand, it breaks, shatters the illusion, um, because obviously the illusion can't be touched. So, yeah, the idea of Icarus being the main villain, I was not expecting. I was also not expecting Ajax to essentially be dead before the film's narrative even really starts. Um, you know, all of Salma Hayek's appearances as Ajax are in flashback. Um, either to the ancient past or to the more recent past with her, her final scenes with Icarus. Um, the idea of the Eternals not being part of humanity but being like artificial constructs is different um, to the uh, the comics as well um, but also the idea of like humanity being used by the Celestials is similar to Jason Aaron's more modern approach with them being a pathogen for the horde, except in this we we are the nourishment, the fuel for a baby celestial. Um, you know the celestials just have a kind of apathy for lower forms of life because they are so far beyond us, and it's it's boggling. It boggles the mind. And it's some very, very interesting concepts, just as just as they were in the original comic. Um but it does change the idea of the the MCU. I mean, Ego referred to himself as a celestial um in Guardians of the Galaxy too. Um whether he was or not, I don't know. Um, you know, he's he's a living planet in the comics, he's not necessarily a celestial. Um you know, he's definitely a celestial being, but he's not a celestial, capital C, celestial. Um, so so whether Ego will be connected to the celestials remains to be seen. Um, they could also tie future threats to the celestials as well, like, for example, Galactus. Um, you know, or... The idea of the the nowhere station from Guardians of the Galaxy, which is a severed head, that's the head of Celestial in the comics. So they could reveal the origins of that head. 
in a, a future movie, something that's powerful enough to kill a celestial. Um, and then, of course, there's the 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 looming threat of Arisham's judgment and the idea that we might not see three of the main celestial characters until then. Um, there has been confirmation that some of these heroes do have multiple film deals, like Salma Hayek apparently has a multiple film deal, so it'd be interesting to see her return. But it's also not necessarily stated that Eternals 2 is a priority. So I'm very, very, very intrigued as to where this could all go based on how these storylines have been used in the comics. I'd very much, very, very much like to see what Marvel does next with this. Now that they've opened the doors to these really high concept ideas. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of the, the high concept craziness that you can get in comic books. Um, you know, but we're doing the Celestials while also doing a story with the multiverse. <sighs> There's a lot of potential for Phase 4 now. Um, Eternals has just kind of opened a door into some of the potential that could possibly be there. And yeah, I'm, I'm really hoping we get to see all these characters again soon. Also, can we just have a quick appreciation for the, the film career of Harry Styles? He's gone from being in a Christopher Nolan film in his first appearance to a Marvel superhero in his second. That's kind of impressive. You know, whatever people's opinions on him are, that is an impressive film career. Um, so, yes, I'm very, very much looking forward to see what Marvel does next with the Eternals, the Celestials. It looks like the Deviants are off the table. They all look like they have been eliminated. Um, but there are other named Deviants in the comics, and, you know, the idea that Deviants are on multiple other planets as well means we could still see them as well. So, we'll see. <laughs> we shall see. Um, but yeah, there's definitely going to be repercussions for the fact that the Eternals killed a Celestial. And it'll be interesting to see how that, what form those repercussions take. I'd be curious to know anyone out there who has seen Eternals. What did you think about it? Did you enjoy it? Did you enjoy its different take on an MCU film? It's more, more cerebral take. It's slower pace. It's non-linear storytelling. Anything like that. Did you enjoy it as a film? Um, you know, get in touch with me at the usual places. And let me know exactly what you thought. Um... But yeah, I think it was a good film. Just a quick reminder before the usual sign-off. Um, there is one episode left um, this year of this current season. And then season two will be coming to an end. Um, that's episode is going to be releasing on the 4th of December so 
to mark that date in your calendars. That's uh, two weeks after the launch of this episode. Um, it is going to uh, look at the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Um, its impact and legacy 20 years later. Um, I'm very much looking forward to just a good excuse to watch those films again and to analyse and talk about them because as much as I rave about more obvious things like Marvel and Star Trek um, yeah those those films are incredible I'm not a huge fan of Tolkien's novels necessarily but the, the films are incredible and I think they are worth celebrating so that's what we're going to be doing um for next year I'm still not sure exactly what date we will be coming back um I will probably post a channel update um for the early part of next year I am going to be transitioning the podcast to YouTube as well as um where the podcasts are currently available um so the existing podcast episodes will be transitioned to YouTube with the idea that all future episodes will be releasing on YouTube and other podcast apps almost simultaneously. So, that is all I have to say for that. I'm aiming for sort of February. I believe the whenever the first episode would be in February, keeping to the current uh, two-week schedule. I think will be the 12th of February however if I am ahead of schedule I might be able to do an episode for the 29th of January as well Uh, at the very least I'm hoping to post an update on the 29th of January to let everyone know exactly what is going on Um, whether that first episode will be on the February the 12th or pushed back to a later date for whatever reason so Thank you for listening. Um, all the social media links are coming up in a minute. Um, please feel free to reach out to me if there's anything in this episode or any other episode that you would like to discuss. Until next time, my friends. Thank you, as always, for joining me here at Gardo Goes Geek. I have been your host, Gardo. If you would like to discuss the topic of this episode or any other episode with me, or would perhaps like to discuss topics that you might like me to cover in a future episode, then as always, I invite you to reach out and contact me. I can be found at Gardo on Reddit, at Gardo Hedgehog on Twitter, or at Gardo on Instagram. I look forward to any discussions that you wish to bring to me. Until next time, take care of yourselves.